Hi, this is Mike Corrado from Villanova University. You're listening to the More Than a Club podcast. Welcome to the More Than a Club podcast. Today's guest is pure, all-Philly, old-school, high-character pro Patrick Resch of the PLL Chaos. Rooted here in Philly, playing at LaSalle College High School and for the Duke's Lacrosse Club, Pat then headed off to Dartmouth, then Duke, and clawed himself into the MLL, the NLL, and now as part of the PLL 2021 World Champion Chaos. Pat takes us down memory lane, developing well-rounded student-athletes, improving one's effort areas, bouncing back from injuries, experiencing six-on-six lacrosse, and much more. Coach Coop and I hope you enjoy listening to Patrick Resch as much as we enjoyed spending time with him. Let's go! Welcome to the More Than a Club podcast with Marty Cuprian and Bill Leahy. Welcome back to the More Than a Club podcast, season four, episode seven. I'm your host, Bill Leahy, along with Coach Marty Cuprian, who was back. Missed you last week, Coach. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate the coverage. Uh, good to have the bullpen flowing with Coach Henwood. And uh, we're wearing our Phillies jerseys tonight, so this one won't come out for a while. But tonight is game five of the World Series in Philadelphia, so... Our guest actually has his jersey on as well, Coach. Yeah, I'm kind of out of the loop as a Baltimore guy, but go Phillies. I'm on board. I'm very proud to welcome today's guest and to get right to it. We'd like to give a very warm NXT welcome to our guest, Patrick Resch. Good to have you with us, Pat. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've really enjoyed listening to some previous episodes, and I'm excited to chat with you guys tonight. I think this is our first father-son duo. We had your dad on years ago. No pressure. You got this. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, obviously, you know, a special lacrosse family with a lot of Philly lacrosse history. So looking forward to learning more. We gave you a great intro before the show. However, quick highlights. LaSalle College High School, then off to Dartmouth, then Duke, MLL, PLL, NLL, and Team USA Sixes training camp. Not bad for a lifetime d Midi. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that covers it covers a lot of ground, but um it's it's been a fun ride so far what i love about your story is that you're a philly guy what i mean by that is you work hard you take pride in your game you take pride in yourself you you honor the game and you're almost like a poster boy for LaSalle lacrosse that's for sure i couldn't be more proud of you but also for philly so thanks for the way you you bring it to the game thanks for, for the way you carry yourself and thanks for making us explorers proud yeah i appreciate that it's uh it's an easy school to represent uh, with the hardworking guys and uh, really talented players that have come through um, just following in their lead and, and filling some big shoes. Speaking of big shoes, wow, the Reshes have had a great month from dad to you and actually a great year. So besides getting into lacrosse, tell us about your life, big wedding, right? And then off to wearing of the green and, and Baltimore for your dad. So take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, outside of lacrosse, I work as a financial advisor in Philly. Um, I really enjoy that work and it's it's been great. It allows me some flexibility to continue playing in the summers and um, be able to, to do things outside of work. And so that's been an awesome experience. I did just get married uh, in April of this year. 
uh, to my wife, Julia. She's from the area as well, from Upper Dublin High School. And we live in the Fairmount section of the city now. And uh, as Coach Coop mentioned, the, uh, the city is buzzing. It's, it's a really exciting time to be downtown. Phillies and Eagles both playing tonight. And uh, I actually got to go down to the stadium for a couple of the NLCS and World Series games. And it's, it's been unbelievable. So it's a cool time to be in Philadelphia. You're being humble. Let's hop into the wearing of the green. What does it mean? And congratulations. Yep. Yeah. So uh, Wearers of the Green is the Dartmouth Hall of Fame. Uh, was started in the mid 80s as a way to get uh, alumni back to campus and uh, honor them for a variety of, um, you know, accomplishments from playing professionally, which is how I was able to, to slide in there. Um, Olympians, multiple time All-Americans. So it, it was a really cool honor. We were back for homecoming weekend this past weekend. Um, and it was, it's, it's really nice to be back and be honored by uh, a school that really uh, was transformational for me, really unbelievable, unbelievable experience there. So, and that was right off the heels of uh, my dad getting into the National Lacrosse Hall of Fame, which is as about as big of an honor as you can, as you can get. Um, so it was, it was a really exciting month for a lot of travel, but a lot of fun for the Rush family. Yeah, it was a great night when I walked into the uh, assembly. The first person I see is you. And then you know, watching your dad really just have a great night. I mean, he nailed his speech and your family at the table could not have been more proud. And then to see all of the people there from the barrage and the wings, Episcopal, um, Andy Hayes, it's just so many folks to cheer him on and LaSalle people as well. What a great night for your dad. Yeah, it was it was really cool to see just how many people showed up and how many areas of the sport that he's touched um, and had a major impact on is really inspiring. And uh, it was a real testament to uh, his influence on, on the game and how, uh, how well he carries himself. And now into your influence. So let's get at it. Youth sport hot topics. The first section we usually have is for parents. And I love what you brought to the table. So kind of about being develop developmentally well-rounded humans. So take it from there, coach. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, you know, when I was thinking about what advice I can give for parents, I'm sort of in this in-between period where, um, you know, on my own now, but not quite a parent and, and sort of in that middle ground, but uh, in, in looking at the club scene and um, high school and kids as, as they're growing up through the sport, um, just developing well-rounded humans, not just well-rounded athletes was uh, something that I that came to mind and I think we all agree from listening to previous episodes uh, I know that you guys are big proponents of multi-sport athletes uh, being better lacrosse players and uh, having that well-rounded uh, aspect to their game but also having other areas of interest as well um, whether that's in arts or sciences or you know outside of school having activities but um, you know, for me growing up, it was my parents did an incredible job of supporting anything I wanted to do, whether that was playing guitar or trombone or taking some art classes at a local community college. It was anything I wanted to do, they supported it. And I think that was a, um, a, a big thing for me and just being a well-rounded person. And I tended to have a predisposition for um, 
hitting people with a stick, but, um, but I think that was, you know, it was great for my experience growing up. That's really strong. How about, uh, an X and O inside of the week, something for, uh, coaches, maybe something along the lines of, you know, your craft as a D midi, um, and, and really the grind of that. I know I take a lot of pride in Ryan Terrafinko being the next guy and, and you're kind of in that class where it's like, you're a bad dude on the field. And like you said, you're, you're hitting people with stick, but, um, you're doing a lot of other things too. So just how did you make a career out of the, the position and, and what is it like? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a position where, uh, you, you don't necessarily get a lot of the, the accolades. You're not scoring points or filling up the score sheet, but, um, I think it's becoming more and more now, uh, you know, through the last couple of years and, when people are starting to realize how important of a position it is, I think it's getting a little bit more um, notoriety as it's, it's really essential to have a rope unit, a, a couple of short stick D middies and a long pole um, that can really change the game uh, on the offensive side, coming down in transition or just shutting down opposing offenses. So, um, you know, as a D midi, one area that I really focused on was in the effort areas of the game. And one of those was being a really strong communicator and it's not necessarily quite an X and O uh, not as much as when Ryan was talking about the um, you know, the double crease inside, but it has a major impact on all of those areas of defense um, and the success that your team's able to have when you put in a defense or a slide package. And so I always tried to be as clear and concise as a communicator as I could, and also focused on physical communication. So, you know, gestures, language, uh, your body language pointing. Um, so that was one area where I, it's one of those things that you can control. You, you might not be the best athlete, but you can always control being a great communicator. So that's, that's one area that I always focused on. And I think it's really important at any level. It's better than an X and O. You know, it takes the X and O's and brings them together, almost like like the glue in your right. It's not just what we say, it's also how we say it. So when I watch film of you playing, you're pointing at people, your teammates are pointing to one another, you have clear, short commands that mean something. Um, and we had that at LaSalle, you know, just clear, short words, but they actually were verbs. Absolutely, yeah, and it's, it is, as I mentioned, being concise is just as important because anybody can yell the whole time that doesn't necessarily make you a, a great communicator it's about the um you know the words that you're saying they need to be you know understandable by your teammate and it, they need to be to the point where you're not wasting you're not wasting energy and it takes defenses to another level we can all watch the film and say this midi was supposed to slide down the backside when the defense slid in a in coma across however so often it doesn't unfold that way. It just It's too chaotic. The offense is doing something unique. And the only way to solve it on the fly among the six defenders is to talk or communicate or body language along with the goalie your way through that situation. And it's fun later to look back and say, okay, so we didn't do things X and O correctly. However, what you did come up with on the fly because of the way you communicated with each other worked. Walk me through that. And it's so great to hear you know, the goalie and six defenders, all without egos, like offensive players, say, here's how we 
pulled this off on the fly because we were able to communicate with one another. 100%. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing when it all comes together. And I think that's a staple of a really good team, a really good defense is how locked in are you and how how strong are your relationships on and off the field to, uh, to make sure that that's as uh, streamlined as possible. Can you look back and think of a team that you were on and they communicated really well defensively or offensively? Yeah, I think just um, because it's so, so recent, our team last year uh, for the chaos when we won the championship, we were just, we spent so much time together. It's, it's different in the PLL because you're only together for 48 hours or so on the weekends, but we spent so much time together because you're, you're together every minute of those 48 hours and bus rides and flights together. And I think we were just all so connected by the end of the season that we hit our stride and we just, it almost was like, we didn't really need to talk. We were so dialed into here's, here's a guy that's going to approach somebody and we know exactly where they're going to send him, uh, and we're ready to go. We're ready on the backside. So those words became really easy to express to each other and blaze in the goal is, is unbelievable at getting us organized and making sure that we're in the right places. So that's one that comes to mind right away. Just we were kind of a well-oiled machine uh, by the time the, the season was ending. Well, next time we have you on, we'll go through the actual vocabulary list of the chaos and exactly what words you use when you guys are out there. It's simple. We, we, don't, we don't go too crazy there. Moving on to our culture building spot. For players who are listening, you've been a part of some amazing teams with really different types of cultures. So any memories you want to take us that made a great team in the locker room? Yeah. So the, uh, I was really fortunate to have coaches like yourself and, and my dad in high school who established a culture early on that emphasized so many good parts of our sport. Uh, one thing that sticks out in my mind is honoring the creator and the roots of the game. That was one thing that was uh, really special early on to learn about where the game comes from and, and honoring uh, those roots of the game. And to have that as a high schooler, I think is really important because it has stuck with me and, and it continues to be a lesson that I, I look back on and I, uh, I really take to heart. And the other aspects that you, you mentioned when my dad was on the podcast about servant leadership and the seniors cleaning up the bus and uh, sweeping the shed and how we carry ourselves uh, both on and off the field as a program. And so at that stage of life as a high school kid, it's, it's so important. Um, so that was set the, the foundation for my playing career. And then into college, the experience echoed a lot of those lessons. Uh, one lesson from Coach Donowski at Duke, uh, one word that he used a lot was called magnanimous, being a living with magnanimity. And uh, it's a that's, Duke word. That's <laughs> a Duke word. And I had no idea. I'd never even heard it in my life. But, um, you know, having great character and spirit and um, being grateful and thankful for your experiences. And so it's been a constant throughout all of the coaches and programs uh, that I've, I've been a part of is focusing on growth as a person 
outside of lacrosse rather than just as an athlete. And I think that's important at any level. And it's, it's an experience that every player would strive for. So I was really fortunate at every level to have that type of experience uh, from coaches. And that's, I, I give all the credit to my experience through uh, lacrosse and my entire lacrosse uh, career to coaches and, and mentors that established those in my, in my, uh, in my life. I'm not sure anybody sweeps the shed better than the Reshes. When you were captain and your dad's coaching, I'd look around and you'd be picking up balls. Your dad would be at the other end pulling goals. You know, and other players look around and say, well, there's a USA Hall of Famer and there's a captain of our team. And these guys are working after practice or after a game as hard to serve everybody else as anyone else. So, yeah, think- yeah. And it becomes it becomes addictive. You you kind of get used to it. And now I'm sure if you came out to a PLL practice, my dad would be the last person on the field uh, at the far end throwing balls down after practice and. Um, yeah, you just, it's, it's embedded in your, in your being now. And it's, uh, it's contagious for sure. Our coworker, Jesse listened to your dad's podcast recently and, you know, she's a couple years late on it. I didn't give her too much crap, but she brought sweep the shed back into the office and some new employees at next heard the lesson of sweep the shed from the all blacks, you know, through the words of Tony Resch. So I would say, keep, keep sharing that and really great stuff there reconnecting all right the next part of our show moves us into knowing more about patrick's story so pat let's start in the beginning youth lacrosse flower town spartans yep spartan lacrosse at uh, cisco field in springfield montgomery county and i was lucky enough to have my dad and my uncle hank as coaches and yeah, I, I fell in love with the game right away. I think I started in, in second or third grade and um, had been on the t-ball fields in Roxborough when I was growing up, and it was just too slow for me, so I, I fell in love with it right away. Did you always play midfield, or as a little guy, did you try a bunch of different positions? Yeah, I was, I was mostly midfield. Um, I just wanted to be involved. I as I mentioned with baseball, it was too slow for me. So even being on attack and standing and watching the other guys playing down the, down the other end of the field, I just wanted to be involved as much as possible. So, um, yeah, I was, I was midfield pretty much straight through. I think I got in, in goal for one practice and that ended really quickly. And probably back then when as a little guy, some offense, which drifted away later in your life, but do you remember what it was like to score some goals or that distant memory? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it was it was pretty thrilling, and yeah, I, I've been able to uh, sneak a few in since then. But yeah, it was uh, playing pee wee lacrosse. It was uh, at that level a lot of running around and ground balls that would last an entire quarter. And uh, but yeah, it was it was fun to play offense, and then um, defense came came a little later on in high school. One of my favorite pictures in my office and in the school hallway is our 2004 first state championship team, and everybody's holding up the trophy, and there you and your brother just kind of flopping around in the photo. You're a little guy. Uh, long before you grew up and became an All-American and a college player, it's one of my favorite pictures. But when I think of that picture, and I think of you as a younger guy, were there players you looked up to? Yeah, so growing up around, my dad was coaching 
the barrage at the time and pre previous to that, obviously a lot of Wings games as a kid and, um, you know, the atmosphere pretty electric down at the, down at the stadiums at the Wells Fargo Center it used to be the first union center back in the day, but, um, you know, the, on a field level in terms of watching guys that are really, um, you know, really close by on the barrage. I actually really liked watching guys like the, the Pizer brothers and um, Matt Zash from Duke were really good players on the barrage and they were, they were sort of grinders. They were unbelievable offensive players in college. And then they went on to their pro careers where they were playing face-off wings, D-Midi doing whatever they needed to do to get on the field. And that's sort of where I think things started to turn a little bit for me or where I realized that, you know, that would be something that I, I think I could do is, is to be one of those guys because it's tough to be an offensive player at, a, at any level. Well, as you watch those guys, I think you took an awful lot from them because you became an outstanding high school player and grinder. What memories do you have playing for LaSalle, for me, be kind, and your dad? <laughs> they're all, yeah, they're all great memories. Um, the LaSalle experience was was incredible, and the level of play, I, I still think back to junior year when uh, the grade above me, the the 2009 class was just so stacked with talent and I think could have competed with some college teams because every starter went on to, to play lacrosse at the next level. And it was just such a, such a dominant team. And so I remember you coach, um, coach Leahy at, uh, I, it was very on, early on in the season and, uh, we were in the gym. I remember that it was March and early uh, cold weather lacrosse. And you pulled me aside and said, listen, you can be a second line offensive midfielder and you, you might get some runs here and there, or you can be a defensive midi and you're going to play, you're going to get on the field. And I said, sign me up, you know, um, I'm ready to do whatever it takes to help the team be successful. And that was such a, uh, an incredible um, turning point for me because I was able to play with those guys, play against some of the best players in the country every day in practice. And so that's where um, the pivot point was uh, for me, I think, to just fully embrace being a defensive midfielder and uh, doing whatever it took. Well, I have two great memories. One was when we played Matt Rambo's team, but he was still at Abington. It was a playoff game, and it was as intense as I've ever felt. And we were in trouble for a little bit. Matt was playing great. So was his brother. And we clawed our way back. I think we tied it. We took the lead. Even the final minutes and seconds mattered. Some tempers flared. And I remember you and your dad. I think it was your senior year. So you on the field just refused to let our team lose. And I have never seen your dad coach so intensely I think you know of course he wanted us to win as much as ever but his son's senior year team in trouble possible last game not going to happen yeah that was that was definitely one of the best games I've ever been a part of just in terms of the atmosphere and um, you know playing a, a local team like Abington who's just uh, you know they're tough kids and they were really 
talented that year. And yeah, I, I do remember, I was thinking back on that game because you had mentioned it and I seriously don't think I came off the field once. Like I, they would score, <laughs> we would score and I'd just run straight to the wing. And yeah, I was, I was uh, refusing to, to let us, let our season end that way. Um, and that was, yeah, that was a really exciting game. That was one of the best games I've ever played in. And a little side note, coaching note, you know, I, there was this one time at practice that I just laid into you for some reason and I turned around and your dad was glaring at me and I was like, oh boy. And then he said, it's hard sometimes when that's your son, but you, but you, but you weren't wrong coach. And I was like, I know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a fine line to, to toe with, um, being your, you, having your dad as a coach and in high school, it was you know, different because we literally had to, once practice ended, whatever happened that during the day or the, or the game, we still had to get in the car and drive home together. And, you know, it was, he, he did an unbelievable job, I think, of separating lacrosse from home life. And so even if things were a little tense in the car on the way home, if I, if I was upset or um, he was, upset with something I did. It was once we got out of the car, things were all good. And uh, I think that was probably more difficult for him than for me, um, but pretty uh, pretty special to be able to go through that together. So as your LaSalle story career starts to come to an end, you have a little bit of a, a if I recall it, later recruiting process to Dartmouth. Can you walk that through to our listeners? Yeah, I, th I think I was a little bit of a late bloomer just in terms of uh, I grew a little bit late and um, filled out later. So I was on the smaller side and didn't, again, as a junior uh, playing on such a talented team, didn't really, um, you know, have, have a ton of tape to show or, um, you know, a lot of big plays that, that are noticeable when you watch our team play because I was surrounded by so much talent. Um, so then in between junior and senior year, I, I played well at a couple of camps with, with the Dukes club team, uh, had a good tournament at champ camp in Hopkins. And I got a call from coach Torpy, who was actually my cousin Liam's coach at Denver and had uh, recently become an assistant at Dartmouth. And I still remember getting the call in my parents' basement in Baltimore um, in Timonium. And yeah, he was he was interested and that was really one of the only calls I got. Um, I was uh, not, not very highly recruited at all, but that was, they showed some interest. And so uh, it, it was a great opportunity for me, great fit. Uh, what made it a great fit outside of lacrosse? Um, I, I just, when I went up to campus, I think they got me up there for a visit in the spring and that was smart of them not to do it in the winter because the campus was beautiful and uh, it's, it's really just a special place in terms of it feels like a real college town and Hanover is, is basically just Dartmouth. Um, and it, so I, I fell in love with the place right away and the program, uh, Andy Towers, coach Towers was, uh, starting his first year as a head coach 
and he's just as you know motivating and intense as it gets and so I, I thought things would be heading in the right direction with him and coach Torpy and uh, Ryan Dennehy as well and so it was kind of uh, I felt really lucky to be even on their list and obviously having the academics to back it up is is pretty incredible too so yeah it was it, it all worked out timing wise but uh, there there weren't a lot of other options out there honestly I think that there's different years in a lacrosse career that are more transitional and challenging than others. So moving from fourth grade to fifth grade is not a big deal. And sixth grade to seventh grade is not a big deal. But eighth grade to a, a program like LaSalle and so many other competitive ones is a big deal. I also think leaving high school and going to college as a freshman is another just exponentially challenging in so many ways step. What was that like for you as a freshman? Because you found your way on the field a little bit. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to contribute right away, and uh, just wanted to do anything I could to get on the field. Whether it was taking face-off wings, playing D midi, transition. You know, I I wanted to play man down if they would let me, and um, just to be able to adjust to the physicality. And the speed of the game, I think, is the is the biggest jump during those transition points that you mentioned um, going from high school. But again, I already talked about it a few times, but we had so many great players at LaSalle in that class ahead of me that, you know, Tucker Durkin and Pete Schwartz and Nico Amato, those are, are guys that were unbelievable college players, and we were playing against them every day. Um, or playing alongside them. So it was um, definitely eye-opening to be around athletes like that every single day uh, at this new level. But um, yeah, just to, just to be able to step on the field, I was really excited uh, first year. So you're going to make me feel good and tell me you were ready, right? In the weight room, exactly on the field, right. in the classroom. <laughs> exactly, yep. But it wasn't always easy. So later in your career, a scary injury, real scary. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, to go I back was, and talk about it, Pat. Yeah, I th I think I can handle it. I I um uh, was in a four on three drill and uh, got hit with a shot inside of my helmet and uh, broke my jaw. I, I think I kind of knew it right away, but um you know it's it's like one of those freak accidents where. It's really nothing you you could have done differently, and um, you, you know it was a rare injury where I didn't really know what to expect, what the recovery was like, what um, you know how long I would be out. I was uh, basically went into the ER and they said you're you're probably going to have to get it wired up. So went home uh, to to visit with my parents right after that and. Uh, they basically wired wired me up the first appointment we went in to get a consultation, and so it was yeah it was it was a tough injury, but especially with not being able to be on the field and uh, and help your teammates to try and be successful, um, it's it, it was really difficult. But again, people go through different injuries, um, whether it's whether it's tearing something or or breaking something, but it's, it's never fun, but 
you just have to try and have some resilience and and bounce back and it makes you more and more grateful for uh, for having the opportunity to play grateful indeed because after that you head off to duke so how did you get an extra year how did that work when you graduate from dartmouth and then you end up playing at duke yeah so i i was actually all things being considered i was sort of fortunate at the timing of the injury. I had only played in four games so far uh, that spring. So I did have an extra year of eligibility. And with the Ivy rules, COVID has has kind of changed a lot of things, but you basically can't play a fifth year at an Ivy. So I had a, um, there was a, a, a guy, John Lovatis from Dartmouth, who had, had been injured at, um, his senior year and he went to Duke to do a one-year master's program and play on the team to use his last year of eligibility so that was probably five years before I got there and yeah he sort of set the um, set the precedent he ended up winning a national championship which is which is incredible but um, he sort of led the way and said here this is an opportunity if you want to take it so uh, yeah, just got in contact with the coaches and they said, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll give you a shot. Did you sense when you arrived at Duke a big difference between the ACC and the Ivy League? Yeah, it's it, the biggest thing I think is just the, um, the top to bottom talent from seniors through freshmen. It, it's just everybody, everybody at Duke is the best player from their high school program. And at Dartmouth, it was more of a team effort in terms of what we were trying to build, uh, not necessarily as much star power, but really trying to build the program from the bottom up in terms of a culture. And um, and again, with a new coach, uh, when I arrived as a freshman, uh, Coach Towers was in his first year. So um, building that culture uh, as, as a new coach and coaching staff, um, whereas at Duke, it was the culture was established, and it was just a, a well-oiled machine at that point. Of um, everybody knew what it took to to be at the highest level. And you played for a legend. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Yeah, it was it was really uh, one of the coolest experiences I've had being able to be coached by um, Coach Donowski, who you know, has done it at every level. It was, it, it was really impressive to see how he went about his business. And one thing that was, that really stuck out to me was he was just as focused on building you up and, and coaching you as a person as he was uh, about, about on the field and becoming a great lacrosse player. He was uh, just as invested in um, your development as a man, as a young man, uh, as he was about the wins and losses, maybe more so. So it was uh, really special. Man, some really great stuff there. Awesome to learn more. And uh, you're really fortunate for those coaches you've gotten to work with along the way, um, starting with dad, obviously. But man, just uh, what lacrosse player wouldn't have loved to have that ride and, and some of those teammates and coaches. Moving on, talk more about uh, professional lacrosse. So uh, everyone knows your success in the recent years with the chaos, um, appearing in the finals this past year, winning it the previous year. 
I'm just now connecting the dots of the Spartans lacrosse club tailgate that I walked by at the, uh, uh, wherever the union play and, and realizing like they were all your fans, but I was uh, hanging out with your cousin, Corey Schaefer and, uh, definitely a rash contingent there. Um, but talk to us, uh, was, were you involved with the MLL and, and really after Duke, you know, take us through the next steps towards continuing to play? Sure. So the MLL was, um, you know, after I graduated in 2015, there were uh, still a couple weeks, uh, you know, where we lost in the playoffs when I was at Duke in the quarterfinals and then had some time where, um, you know, the top guys went straight to play and I hadn't been picked up by anybody um, in the MLL. So I used to, my dad had some contacts in the Bayhawks, um, Chesapeake Bayhawks team uh, because he had coached for them way back in the day. And, you know, they, they needed local guys that would be able to practice and just needed extra bodies uh, for when people were traveling and flights would get canceled or people couldn't make it to practice the night before. So I basically drove down there and played pole, did whatever they needed and um, was able to play a couple games with them. And again, just get my foot in the door. Uh, and then the following year, uh, latched on with Charlotte, uh, with the Charlotte Hounds and my teammate from Duke, Will Hawes, who's, who's a really great friend of mine um, and had a, had a couple of years with them, which was, you know, a, a pretty cool experience just to be able to play with uh, the caliber of players that, that were on that team and then finished up with, uh, with Tucker Durkin on the launch. He was uh, able to help me get my foot in the door there. So I, I just, yeah, I bounced around, but it was, it was a pretty cool experience. I love in your family blood, the late bloomers and all of you. It's great. You know, even your dad had an amazing post-collegiate career and you've had an amazing <clears throat> post-collegiate career. I also love that you hang in there, right? You're driving down just to be kind of a extra guy. And next thing you know, you prove yourself and you're getting some playing time. And next thing you know, you're moving on to Charlotte. Next thing you know, you're moving up and, and then you end up at the PLL. Like, it's a good journey. Everybody wants to be a star right away, and you put in a long time until you're playing at the highest level possible with the best players in the world. Yeah, I think it's just fortunate timing is a lot of it, just as much luck as it is hard work. And, um, you know, I've, I've been lucky to have those, those connections that are able to vouch for me that if, if you give this guy a chance, he's going to work his butt off for you. And the timing of the PLL couldn't have been any better because I was sort of bouncing around and um, had fallen out at Charlotte and then was lucky enough to play a couple games right at the end of the year with the launch. So I was a little bit on the radar. And when they proposed the PLL and said, we're going to try and take some of these guys um, over to start a new league, I've, it was a no-brainer for me uh, because it was – um, you know, I, I didn't have anything to lose at that point. So it was all upside. And so that's been, I, I was so fortunate the timing that it worked out. And uh, again, really a lot of luck um, with, with a little bit of hard work. Humility, another family trait, but chaos 
seems, correct me if I'm wrong, to have a real identity to them. Am I right or am I wrong? It seems like this ragtag group of guys who go 500 or less during a season and then show up at playoff time and... Well, let me give it my chance, too. I would say they're like a box, a box kind of hybrid team. And a lot of the guys play the the indoor game. So they're definitely like aggressive. So um, that would be my kind of take. And then Andy Towers just seems like a total madman. And but that's your old college coach. So that's that must be pretty cool. So, yeah, take us in, like tell, you know, our average listener, what is what would you consider the, the identity or what's that being on that team like? Yeah, it's, it's again, Coach Towers sets the tone, and you, you guys have all seen on social media, I'm sure. He's, he's exactly like that. He does not do it for the cameras. He is like that 100% of the time, which is um, it's awesome. It, it's contagious, his energy. And um, I, I think you're right on, Coach, about the, the chaos identity. I think it, people latch on to the – late runs and my way of explaining it is all these, you know, a, a large majority of our team is playing box that runs into the outdoor season. And, you know, we had some guys, a bunch of our best players on the Buffalo bandits this year. So they went all the way through the championship. And so in my mind for, you know, weeks 10 to 13 in the playoffs for us are like weeks five to eight for everybody else because we're hitting our stride when these guys have had a little time to acclimate to that back to the outdoor game to get healthy and uh, readjust, you know, how they're working out and staying in shape. So, you know, we definitely, I think peak at the right time, but it is really tough on those guys to go straight from an indoor season into, uh, into outdoor and try and be successful after, after a grind. What about playing in front of Blaze? Seems like a pretty unique goalie, and you mentioned him earlier, but what's that like? Yeah, he's he's unbelievable. He's one of my favorite teammates I've ever had, and he really makes things easy on a guy like me where we you know, tend to try and send guys to areas where he likes to see shots down the alleys and uh, force outside shots really pack in the middle. And it's, it's such a... Um, you know, it, it's, it helps to have a guy like that in your goal because you feel like you can make a mistake as long as the mistake is in the right direction, if that makes sense. So if we're sending a guy to his offhand, uh, even if it's a great shot, Blaze loves those shots and um, he's, he's the ultimate team guy. He, he does whatever it takes to make sure we're successful. Changing gears to USA lacrosse, I'm going through the Sixes roster months ago. I'm going down, and there I see Patrick Resch, and I'm like, no way. So this whole new modality, six-on-six, preparing for the Olympics in the future, and you get a shot at this. What was it like? Yeah, that was really cool. That was something I really didn't expect to be a part of, or I, I didn't really know what to expect going into it because it was so new at the time. And I had a little bit of inside info because my dad had helped out with some of the, um, some of the training sessions and putting together what, what this team might look like or how they want to structure things. But it's, it, 
obviously for for the Olympics to be able to send a smaller team and um, smaller ros roster to be able to travel them. But the pace is is one of my favorite things about it. And I love being able to get up and down and a sh short field helps to be able to, you know, go from one end to the other and, um, you know, be right in the action. It's almost like a basketball uh, court where you're you're up and down and you have to be able to do both. So I really like it. I, I think um, it's it's not necessarily geared towards some players, but um, it, I really enjoy it. I would think it's geared to a guy like you. You can score some goals. You can play some defense. You know how to substitute. Right. And it's mostly offensive guys. I think teams have structured their teams that way uh, in, you know, with the world games and the Canadians. And so it's nice to be able to, even when you do get on offense, you're, when I'm running down there, I'm likely to get matched up with an offensive guy. So um, even I have a shot. So it's, it's not bad. Was there a specific rule you liked or didn't like? Um, the, the rule with no backup of the shots, I think makes sense because it's, they're trying to speed things up and um, it's to, to have to run and get a new ball instead of just, just running back. I think it makes sense, but it is a little weird uh, just to, if somebody takes a shot and, it's a turnover if it doesn't hit the cage. So that was something teams really had to adjust to. It seems so logical. So many other sports do it. And when I speak to somebody who doesn't understand the games of game of lacrosse, they'll say, that's the dumbest rule. You put your sticks out, you dive at the end line to keep possession. And so now that they switched it to be like so many other sports, it seems strange to us because we're so used to our own unique, bizarre rule of keeping possession. Yeah, I feel like that's a really tough one for people, casual fans, when they watch the game. They they can't pick up on that, why why they're getting the ball back or, um, yeah, right, why people are, are diving all over the place. So what's next in your career? Uh, I'm going to keep showing up until they tell me not to, basically. Love it. Um, I, 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 love, <laughs> I love where I am, you know, on, on the team. Uh, chaos is – it's such a great group of guys that I love spending time with. So I'll, I'll keep doing it as long as they they'll have me. And uh, it's, it's been a really fun ride and, and definitely lasted a little bit longer than uh, I think anybody in my circle expected. Yeah. Not your old high school coach, bud. I'm super proud of you. Very grateful for your LaSalle years and uh, keep up the great work as we bring our show here to an end. You ready for our rapid fire homework? All right, here we go. What homework do you have for parents who are listening? So uh, my parent um, homework is going to tie in a little bit with the other homeworks, but um, my idea is to ask your child or your, your player who their favorite current athlete is and why they admire them on and off the field. Uh, I think I just find it really interesting to see generational differences in athletes, and I think it might provide some insight into – how your child plays and, and carries themselves on the field. So, um, yes, yeah, see, see who they're into right now. And that leads into homework for players who are listening. Yep. So flip side of the same question, but ask your parents who their favorite athlete was when they were growing up and maybe a specific memory that your parents have of watching the athlete play. 
and so I, yeah, I think again, generational differences are, are really cool. And, uh, you know, asking what are some of the attributes that a player can focus on adding to their game, uh, that might be an old school characteristic that, uh, that the parents really admired in an athlete growing up. And last, how about coaches who are listening? Coaches, I'll keep it simple. Just do the same thing as the parents. Ask your, uh, <laughs> ask your players who their favorite current athlete is. And what are you listening to or reading these days? Um, right now I'm reading uh, a little bit of um, some short stories from Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, book's called Welcome to the Monkey House. Uh, it's, it's pretty bizarre, but it's, it's pretty cool. Um, I just finished rereading Brave New World, uh, which is sort of a dystopian novel. And then uh, athletically, one that, that I read recently was called The Boys in the Boat, uh, which I think is a pretty classic um, sports book. And it was about the University of Washington crew team uh, in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And it's all about the crew uh, being the ultimate team sport and no individual egos, just, uh, you know, team comes above all else. And it was, it was a pretty inspiring story. Brave New World and the collection of other readings. On top of everything, you're an intellectual coach. I love it. Those, yeah, those took me a lot longer to read than that. That, that was not <laughs> recent. That was probably all I read over the last year. Pat, thanks so much for your time and thoughtful conversation tonight. Wanted to give you another congratulations on your recent marriage, the wearing of the green, and all of your success with the PLL chaos. Um, you are a perfect guest for our show tonight. I think we're all better for having you as our guest. Um, so thank you again. Go Phils, go Birds. And uh, it was really nice to see you with Coach Leahy. Coach Leahy, any closing thoughts? I loved you up enough tonight. I'm <laughs> proud of you. You've done good. The Eagles await, the Phillies await. And uh, you're off to good things. Yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be calling you in for some box lacrosse coaching now that we know you're in Fairmount. Uh, maybe we'll swing by and pick you up. But um, run that one by the wife. And uh, once again, thank you. And uh, we'll close things out from Concha Hawkin tonight. For Bill Leahy, for our producer Justin, this is Coach Coop. Closing it down from next. Thank you for listening. All right. Thanks. You were great, Pat. Awesome.